and welcome to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor. As always, thank you very much for listening. On the morning of May 23rd, 1498, three men were led into the main square of Florence's Piazza della Signoria. Although their hands were bound like common criminals, the simple monastic garments they wore betrayed the fact that these were holy men. Standing before an ad hoc tribunal composed of a mixture of senior clergymen and secular government officials, the three men were each in turn branded as heretics and sentenced to die as such. One by one, the three friars were led up to separate gallows, bearing their imminent fate with a quiet and solemn dignity. The men were then executed by hanging. Their bodies were incinerated by fire, and their ashen remains were collected and scattered into the Arno River. The final man to be hanged and burned was Girolamo Savonarola, a 45-year-old Dominican friar, originally hailing from the city of Ferrara. It seems difficult to fathom that just one year prior, this monk had been the most powerful man in all of Florence. His prophecies of the divine punishment of sinners and heretics, the imminent reformation of the Catholic Church, and the transformation of Florence into the biblical New Jerusalem, had captivated many who earnestly believed that all these things would come to pass at the dawn of the new century. With his death, the faith of the people in him was shattered. The spell that he had once cast over Florence, the city once heralded as the birthplace of the Renaissance, was now broken. Who exactly was this man, this monk, who had been so feared and loathed by his persecutors that they deemed him to be deserving of such a spectacular death? Who had been so beloved by his followers that they believed, right up until the very end, that he would rescue himself from the flames somehow? Was he the saint that many believed him to be? Or was he the sinner that he had been condemned to die as? In this series of the Historia Dramatica podcast, we will be covering the life and times of Girolamo Savonarola, carefully examining the events that led to the scene that I previously described. In doing so, I hope to create a narrative of the real Savonarola, one that does not define him in such dualistic terms as saint or sinner, but rather one which portrays him as the complex, multifaceted, and nuanced character that he was in actuality. The man who would meet his grisly death in Florence on that fateful spring morning was born in the city of Ferrara on September 21st, 1452, and was christened Girolamo Maria Francesco Matteo Savonarola. He was born into a relatively privileged family. His father, Nicolo Savonarola, was a small-time merchant and money-changer, and his mother, Elena Bonacossi, was descended from a noble family originating in the city of Mantua. However, it was Girolamo's grandfather that was the true shining star of the family. Michele Savonarola was a notable physician who wrote numerous treatises that managed to win him fame in his field. It was this reputation that prompted the Duke of Ferrara, Niccolò d'Este, to invite Michele to his court to serve as his personal physician. The court of Ferrara was notorious at this time, for lack of a better word, its worldliness. Ferrara at the time was renowned as a center of Renaissance culture, and all that implies. It is evident, however, that the progressive, humanist attitude of the nobles who made up the court of Ferrara did not seem to influence Michele Savonarola. Across several sources, authors describe the elder Savonarola as, quote, a dyed-in-the-wool medievalist, end quote, who was furthermore, quote, repulsed by the cult of pleasure and sensuality and the materialistic worldliness of the Dieste court, end quote. Michele Savonarola was an austere man, whose physiological tracts were interspersed with moralizing screeds. It was Girolamo's grandfather who would exert the greatest influence on him in the earliest stages of his life. Michele took personal charge of the young Girolamo's education. 
But more than that, he seems to have imparted his attitudes and worldview onto little Girolamo as well. Girolamo's education would, in keeping with his grandfather's conservative outlook, consist initially of the study of classical Latin and of the Bible. Girolamo demonstrated a degree of intellectual brilliance very early on. By the time his grandfather died, he was 16, but he had already become rather proficient in Latin, and had memorized all of the books of the Bible by heart. As he grew older, Girolamo became rather disaffected with the world. He, like his grandfather, abhorred what he viewed as the degeneracy of the current age. He withdrew from the materialist excesses and sinful preoccupation with physical pleasure that characterized life in the cities of Renaissance Italy, instead opting to spend his time in solitary study of scripture and of the early church fathers such as St. Thomas Aquinas. It would appear that Girolamo's sense of despair regarding the material world was not yet all-encompassing, as there is evidence to suggest that he, at some point following his grandfather's death in the year 1468, enrolled briefly at the University of Ferrara. This had been strongly encouraged by his father, who wished for him to follow in the prestigious footsteps of his grandfather and become a physician. The education Girolamo received at the university was typical humanist curricula that were ever-present in Italian universities in this period. In this context, Girolamo would have widely read the classical philosophers from whose writings the humanist ideology of the Renaissance was derived. He is known to have read the works of such figures as Cicero, Ovid, Plato, and Aristotle. Later on, when Girolamo turned decisively against humanism and began to weigh invective against it, his opponents noted that his attacks on it were so effective given that he was already so well educated on the subject. But I am getting a bit ahead of myself. It was also around this time that young Girolamo suffered his first, and it would seem, only romantic heartbreak. He had become acquainted with one Laudomia Strozzi, the illegitimate daughter of a formerly prominent exiled Florentine family. According to one of Savonarola's earliest biographers, when Girolamo asked Laudomia to marry him, she responded scornfully that a member of the Strozzi family would not deign to marry a mere Savonarola to which Girolamo replied with equal disdain that a member of his family would never marry a bastard of the house of Strozzi. Whether or not this incident pushed Savonarola further towards the direction of a wholesale rejection of the material world and its sinfulness is difficult to say, but what is readily apparent is that by the age of 20, Savonarola was more or less inclined to that very way of thinking. It was at this time that he wrote one of his earliest extant works, a poem entitled On the Ruin of the World. In this poem, he self-righteously condemns the current corrupted state of affairs. He sees his fellow Italians as being lustful, avaricious people who have abandoned all godly virtue in pursuit of the pleasures of the flesh. None were safe from the young Savonarola's vitriol, not even the Pope himself. Of the institution of the papacy, he wrote, quote, the scepter has come into a pirate's hands, St. Peter is laid low, here lustfulness and every prey abounds, and I know not why heaven is not baffled." End quote. At the conclusion of his poem, he exhorts his reader to, quote, "...be careful not to lean against a purple color, flee palaces and loggias, and tell your thoughts to a little few, for you will be a foe to all the world." End quote. The anti-clerical stance expressed here is by no means uncommon in Renaissance Italy. Author Paul Strathern asserts, quote, There was indeed a widespread understanding throughout the secular educated classes in Italy at this time that the church was corrupt, and many discerning Italians maintained a sincere religious belief that remained separate and personal, 
paying little more than lip service to the hierarchy that claimed to represent their religion on Earth. End quote. Over the next three years following the writing of his first poem, On the Ruin of the World, Savonarola's despair at the state of the world only deepened, although he hesitated to leave it behind entirely. His father and the rest of his family, for that matter, were still expecting him to become a physician and to provide materially for them. However, being mortified as he was of the flesh, Savonarola, it is needless to say, did not take very well to the study of medicine. It would take a sermon by an Augustinian preacher that finally served as Savonarola's impetus to leave the secular world behind and to devote his entire life to religion. Specifically, what Savonarola claimed to have heard was a reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 12, quote, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house to the land that I will show you, end quote. Savonarola would later recall that at that time he felt as though God was speaking directly to him. It would be a whole year before he would finally act on this feeling, however. On April 24th, 1475, Savonarola, without informing his family of his decision, set out from Ferrara en route to the city of Bologna, some 50 or so kilometers to the southwest. Upon reaching the city, Savonarola merely knocked on the door of the convent of San Domenico, and asked to be admitted into the Order of the Dominicans. Savonarola explained the rationale behind this momentous life decision in a letter he wrote to his father, dated April 25th, 1475. Quote, the reason why I entered into a religious order is this. First, the great misery of the world, the wickedness of man, the rapes, the adulteries, the thefts, the pride, the idolatry, the vile curses. For the world has come to such a state that one can no longer find anyone who does good. I did this because I cannot stand the great wickedness of the blind people of Italy, especially when I saw that virtue had been cast down and vice raised up." End quote. In this letter to his father, Savonarola went on to say that this decision of his was not one that he made lightly, but he also restated his claim that he believed that it was God who was speaking directly to him. While his family wanted him to be a physician of the body, Savonarola was instead determined to become what he called a physician of souls. Regardless of how much this decision may have pained him at the time, he made it nonetheless, and he was not about to look back. The Order of the Preachers was founded in the year 1216 by a Spanish monk named St. Dominic, from whom the order derives its colloquial name, the Dominicans. The order's founder envisioned it as a mendicant order, meaning that it would differ from other Catholic religious orders in two crucial respects, one being that they were devoted to preaching, primarily in urban areas, and the second being that they took a vow of poverty, held no personal possessions, and depended on alms for survival. Although not characteristic of all mendicant orders, the Dominicans became famous for their tradition of intellectualism. St. Dominic was himself a scholar, and so adherence to the order had a tendency to follow in his footsteps. Initially, upon first joining the order, a novice was made to complete a trial year. During this time, novices were tasked with performing various menial tasks for the convent, such as gardening and sewing. To many people, this sort of thing may seem insufferably tedious or demeaning, but Savonarola would later write quite fondly of his Novite year in the convent as being one of the greatest in his life. Quote, I found liberty and did all that I wanted, because I wanted nothing else, desired nothing else, than to do all that I was told or commanded to do. End quote. After having spent a year at the monastery in quiet servitude, Savonarola was officially inducted into the order, becoming a subdeacon in 1476 and a full deacon the following year. By this point, Savonarola had thrown himself enthusiastically into his studies. 
He was scarcely ever seen around the monastery without a book in hand. He read the works of the early church fathers, such as Augustine, Cassian, and Jerome, but by far the book that he read the most of was, of course, the Bible. Before long, the other members of the order recognized Savonarola's impressive intellect, and in 1479, he was appointed as a junior lecturer to the priory of Santa Maria degli Angeli in his hometown of Ferrara, where he taught subjects such as logic to novices. In 1482, after three years in this position, Savonarola was reassigned to the convent of San Marco in the city of Florence to serve as the master of novices there. The exact reasons for this decision are somewhat murky. At least one author suggests that it was due to the outbreak of war between Venice and Ferrara, which made the prospect of returning to the latter city a physically dangerous one. Another explanation involves Savonarola's participation in the 1482 Chapter General of the Dominicans of Lombardy, the annual convention where the policies of the order were to be determined. At this convention, Savonarola, as might be expected, delivered an impassioned speech on the corruption of the church. Instead of getting him in trouble with the hierarchy of the order, his speech had so impressed his former mentor, Vincenzo Bandelli, that Bandelli pushed for the 31-year-old friar to be granted a promotion. Whatever the reason for his reassignment, in May of 1482, Savonarola, clothed in a humble black cloak and sandals, and carrying with him his sole worldly possessions, among them, of course, being the Bible that he had inherited from his grandfather, dutifully set out from Ferrara to Florence, a city which has been described as being, quote, the worldliest city of the age, end quote. Although there is evidence of an Etruscan settlement in the area, most histories of the city of Florence date back to the year 59 BCE, when Julius Caesar founded the city of Florentia as a settlement for his veteran soldiers. After the fall of the Western Roman Empire, Florence became a part of the March of Tuscany. Exactly when Florence became an independent city-state is not known for certain, although most historians believe this transformation would have occurred sometime between the years 1000 and 1100. The Florentine Republic remains relatively small and irrelevant until about the 13th century, when Florence became a battleground in the larger conflict which embroiled much of the Italian peninsula at this time. The wars between the Guelphs, who supported the Pope, and the Ghibellines, who supported the Holy Roman Emperor. The city changed hands between these two factions numerous times throughout the century. While these conflicts between Italian city-states may seem obscure, they were highly important in that the Guelphs and the Ghibellines differed greatly in their respective ideologies. The emperor-supporting Ghibellines, being comprised mainly of nobles and aristocrats, were the more conservative faction whereas the Pope-supporting Guelphs, being mainly wealthy merchants, had a slightly more populist outlook by comparison. When the Guelphs took control of the Republic in the mid-13th century, they immediately began to promote policies of free trade and social mobility. The most remarkable achievement of the Florentine Guelphs was the creation of the Florin, a new gold coin which was used even beyond the borders of Florence and soon became the new international standard currency. It was thanks to this confluence of factors the policy of the Guelphs, the creation and proliferation of the Florin, and the profits from the city's primary industry, that being the manufacture of wool and cloth, that led Florence to become one of the richest cities on the entire Italian peninsula. Florence became an international center of commerce and finance, and over the following centuries several banks would be established in that city that would carry out transactions in places far afield. One such bank was the Medici Bank, founded in the year 1397, but more on that later. Suffice it to say that Renaissance Florence was one of the most impressive cities of its time. 
Here, I quote from humanist author Leonardo Bruni on the magnificence of the city and its inhabitants, quote, I wish that God immortal would bestow upon me an eloquence worthy of the city of Florence, of which I am about to speak, or at least an eloquence that equals my love and zeal for it. I believe suffice in revealing the magnificence and splendor of the city. Nothing more beautiful or splendid than Florence can be found anywhere in the world. The splendor of the city is so remarkable that no eloquence could even begin to describe it. As it happens sometimes that a son's resemblance to his parents is immediately noticeable, so too did the Florentines resemble their most noble and illustrious city to such a degree that one is led to believe they could never have lived anywhere else, nor could Florence have any other kind of inhabitant. Just as these citizens far excel other people by virtue of their natural genius, prudence, wealth, and magnificence, so too Florence, whose site was most carefully chosen, is superior to all others in splendor, beauty, and cleanliness." End quote. In order to properly discuss the history of Florence in this period, it is impossible not to speak at length about the man who transformed the city into what it was, Lorenzo de' Medici, also known as Lorenzo the Magnificent. Born on the 1st of January, 1449, at the Medici family's opulent palazzo in Florence, Lorenzo de' Medici, or Lorenzo the Magnificent, was one of the seminal figures in the history of Renaissance Italy. By the time he was born, his grandfather, Cosimo de' Medici, had been the lord of Florence for nearly half a decade. By most accounts, the Medici family was a relative newcomer to the Florentine political scene. They were by no means the oldest or most revered family in the city, but they were far and away the wealthiest. The family had accrued a massive fortune in the banking industry, and had used said fortune to create an extensive network of patronage that allowed them to solidify their control over the city. Florence was, in this era, a republic, at least nominally. Florence was governed by a nine-man council known as the Signoria. At the head of the Signoria was the Gonfalonier. Each man of the Signoria was elected by lottery rather than by direct vote, and their terms of office were just two months long. This system may seem unwieldy to modern listeners living in liberal democratic republics, but it worked out remarkably well for the Florentines at the time, as it was able to maintain some semblance of republican government for the first two centuries of its existence. This state of affairs, of course, changed with the rise of the Medici. As I said, they were not the oldest or most prestigious family in the city, but they were the wealthiest. Again, they had made their fortune in the banking sector, a relatively new innovation that was at this juncture still unique to the Italian peninsula. The Medici Bank had been founded in the year 1397 by Giovanni de' Medici, and it quickly rose to become the largest and most prestigious bank in Italy, counting among its patrons no less a figure than the Pope himself. Giovanni de' Medici had died in 1429, but he had prepared his son Cosimo well for the challenges of managing this family's affairs. At this time, the main political opponents of the increasingly powerful Medici family was the Albizzi family. In 1433, the Albizzi, fearing the growing influence of Cosimo de' Medici on the government of Florence, conspired to have him arrested and executed, although Cosimo's sentence was later commuted to 10 years' exile. In spite of Cosimo's exile, the Medici still had powerful allies within the city, and these allies soon won control over the government, facilitating Cosimo's return to Florence after just one year in exile. Cosimo de' Medici's dramatic return to Florence in 1434 marks the beginning of the Medici domination of the city. Those who had conspired against the family were themselves exiled, and Cosimo saw to it that the Florentine government was overhauled so as to guarantee that true political power would remain in the hands of himself and his family. Upon Cosimo's death in 1464, he was succeeded as the de facto lord of Florence 
by his 48-year-old son, Piero. Piero, who is known to history as Piero the Gouty, was, as his epithet implies, afflicted with gout, the genetic scourge of the Medici family, throughout most of his life. Piero also largely liked the political and business acumen of his father, not to mention his magnetic charisma. Piero's affliction often kept him bedridden, and it had a deleterious effect on his personality as well, making him irritable and short-tempered. His tenure as ruler of Florence is marked by an attempted coup d'etat against the Medici family's hegemony, an attempt that was foiled, thanks in part, to the efforts of Piero's son, Lorenzo. Lorenzo de' Medici stands out as one of the seminal figures of the history of the Italian Renaissance. He was only 20 years old at the time of his father's untimely death, but Lorenzo took on the duties of his office with great skill. Of course, it helps that Piero had prepared his son well for just such an eventuality. As a young man, Lorenzo had been sent by Piero on various diplomatic missions across Italy. It was in the course of these missions that Lorenzo learned various important skills that would be instrumental to his future leadership of the Medici family and of Florence as a whole. Piero's rule had seen a significant decrease in the Medici's power, both political and economic. Lorenzo immediately moved to rectify his father's past mistakes. At the beginning of his rule, he instituted a number of reforms to the Florentine constitution that, while seeming insignificant, actually delegated much more political power to Lorenzo and the pro-Medici faction in the city, thus turning the patronage network established by Cosimo into a more well-organized and efficient political machine. Of course, Lorenzo earned his title, the Magnificent, not only for his adept political maneuvering and immense wealth, but also for his generous patronage of the arts, which was instrumental in turning Florence into a central hub of Renaissance culture. Both his father and grandfather before him had been avid patrons of the arts, especially the visual arts, and while Lorenzo continued this tradition, it was not quite to the same extent as his forebears. Among the artists in Lorenzo's court were such names as Leonardo da Vinci, Sandro Botticelli, Andrea del Verrocchio, Domenico Girlandio, and Michelangelo Buonotti. While Lorenzo is not known to have personally commissioned very many works from artists such as these, he did function as a sort of agent for them, connecting them with other patrons who would commission them for various projects. For instance, it was on Lorenzo's recommendation that a number of Florentine artists, such as Botticelli and Girlandio, were hired to paint murals for the Sistine Chapel in Rome. It would seem that Lorenzo was far more interested in the written word than he was in the visual arts. Lorenzo was quite fond of surrounding himself with some of the most prominent philosophers of the day, such as Angelo Poliziano and Pico della Mirandola. Figures such as these were engaged in the most prominent intellectual project of the age, namely the resurrection of the classical tradition of ancient Greece and Rome, and the attempts to reconcile this tradition with Christianity. This was, essentially, what Renaissance humanism, that school of thought that Savonarola would come to oppose vehemently in time, was premised on. And Lorenzo, through his lavish patronage, lent crucial support to this grand intellectual project. Perhaps most notably, Lorenzo greatly expanded the Medici family library, which today is host to one of the largest collections of medieval manuscripts and early printed books in the world. In fact, Lorenzo considered himself to be somewhat of an intellectual, he frequently engaged in prolonged rhetorical debates with a circle of friends, and was rather fond of writing poetry. Granted, he is by no means considered to be one of the best poets of his time, but his work is still considered to be of literary significance nonetheless. Since I'm sure you're quite curious as to exactly what kind of poetry Lorenzo the Magnificent wrote, 
I will now read you one of his compositions, quote, Let him who is no lover go hence and seek another floor on which to dance. He merits not good chance. Be there one who knows not love. Let him hasten from this place, for that heart is poor in grace, which fond adores doth not prove. Be there one whose fires burn low. Let him breathe on them, and so, they blaze again, he need not go. Love presideth over this feast. Those who serve him gather round. Be there one by envy bound. Take he leave, for thus at least he will go and not be chased. Only those whom love hath graced in so sweet a bower are placed. Be there one who is ashamed of loving. Let him ponder fair, and she will soon become aware. To love is to be nobly famed. For love all homage doth deserve, in gratitude doth shame reserve. Be there one perchance so vile as to flee for fright, let her understand aright, no such coward fancies while in gentle hearts. Nature doth bring us beauty, foolish toward to fling away the roses of spring. End quote. Needless to say, there is a reason why Lorenzo the Magnificent is best remembered for his immense wealth and power rather than for his poetic ability. In any event, it is worth bearing in mind that Lorenzo did not patronize literature and the arts simply for its own sake. He viewed patronage as another means by which to display his wealth and to cement his hold on power. In 1471, Lorenzo estimated that his family had spent roughly the equivalent of $460 million on such pursuits, Writing, quote, I do not regret this, for though many would consider to have a part of that sum in their purse, I consider it to have been a great honor to our state, and I think the money was well expended, and I am well pleased. End quote. This is all not been to say that the Medici were completely secure in their rule of Florence. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. Thus far, we've already seen resistance to the Medici emerge multiple times in our narrative thus far. The 1433 conspiracy that led to the exile of Cosimo and the abortive coup against Piero in 1466 are just two examples of this. However, no event came closer to breaking the Medici's hold on power entirely than the Pazzi conspiracy of 1478. The actual origins of the Pazzi conspiracy are rather obscure, but it should suffice to say that the Pazzi family was one of the many aristocratic families in Florence who opposed the Medici hegemony. They conspired, with the assistance of their relative, the Bishop of Pisa, Francesco Salviati, to assassinate Lorenzo. The Pazzi sprung their attack on April 26, 1478, as Lorenzo and his brother Giuliano attended Mass at Florence's cathedral. The attack took place in the middle of the Sacrament of Communion. Two priests who were standing near Lorenzo produced daggers from their cloaks and attacked him. They managed to wound him in the neck, but Lorenzo was able to take advantage of the commotion that followed and fleed the area. His brother, Giuliano, was not quite as lucky, as other Pazzi conspirators in the congregation stabbed him to death. At the same time this attack was taking place, Salviati attempted to seize control of the Piazza della Signoria, the seat of the Florentine government, and to oust those ministers who remained loyal to the Medici. In this effort, the archbishop failed. The Signoria sensed that something was amiss and detained the archbishop in their chambers. The Pazzi conspirators hoped to rally popular support against the Medici by invoking Florence's republican tradition and claiming, not exactly disingenuously, that they were being subverted by the Medici's influence. The patriarch of the family, Jacopo de Pazzi, 
had gathered a decent-sized crowd in the courtyard of the Piazza della Signoria and led them in chants of Il Popolo e Libertà, or The People and Liberty, a popular Republican rallying cry in Florence. However, the people in the crowd, many of whom had benefited directly from Medici patronage, refused to turn on them and countered the Pazzi chants with their own Medici slogans. When the news of the attempted assassination of Lorenzo reached the piazza, the men of the Signoria tied a noose around Archbishop Salviati's neck and flung him from a high window, to the great delight of the crowd below and to the horror of Jacopo de Pazzi. Later that day, the bloodied but still very much alive Lorenzo de' Medici reappeared at the Palazzo de' Medici. He sought to rally popular support behind himself and the Medici by claiming that the attempt on his life was part of a foreign plot against Florence. This argument ultimately won the day. The people of Florence turned against the Pazzi conspirators with righteous fury. Those who were even suspected of participating in the conspiracy were dragged from their residence and lynched by angry mobs. In the days that followed, Lorenzo ordered those conspirators who had managed to flee the city to be hunted down and brought to justice. The failed Pazzi conspiracy held severe diplomatic repercussions. Pope Sixtus IV was, quite understandably, rather incensed at the murder of Archbishop Salviati. He had summarily excommunicated Lorenzo and placed the entire city of Florence under interdict, essentially forbidding mass from taking place there. In order for this ban to be lifted, the Pope demanded that Lorenzo be turned over to the papal authorities. When the city's officials refused to do this, Sixtus IV induced his vassal, the King of Naples, Ferrante I, to declare war on Florence, thus putting Florence in a rather difficult situation. They could not count on much support from their traditional allies in Bologna and Milan. Realizing that Florence didn't stand a chance against the combined papal Neapolitan force, Lorenzo took the initiative and traveled personally to the court of King Ferrante in Naples. There, he spent four months negotiating for peace. Ferrante attempted to prolong the negotiations for as long as possible, hoping that Lorenzo's absence from the city would allow for another anti-Medici insurrection to occur, but outside developments put a swift end to the negotiations. In July 1480, an Ottoman fleet captured the port town of Otranto on the southeastern tip of the Italian peninsula. The prospect of the Muslim Turks gaining a foothold in Italy was absolutely terrifying to the Christian rulers of the region, the Pope most especially. It is for that reason that Sixtus IV ordered an immediate secession of hostilities with Florence. The excommunication and interdict were both rescinded shortly thereafter. The Pazzi conspiracy and the resulting diplomatic crisis had clearly demonstrated that Medici rule in Florence was not invincible, but these events had also provided Lorenzo with an opportunity to prove himself to his people. During that time, Lorenzo had demonstrated determination, courage, and a willing to sacrifice himself for the greater good. Admiration for Lorenzo now became more widespread than ever, and author Kenneth Bartlett asserts that when he returned to Florence in late 1480, he did so as, quote, a prince in all but name, end quote. Whereas once Lorenzo had put up some flimsy pretext of maintaining Florence's Republican tradition, this was more or less dispensed with altogether during this period. Lorenzo traveled through the streets of the city flanked by armed bodyguards, and openly dispensed favors and patronage as he saw fit. All foreign dignitaries now had to deal directly with him, and no significant political decision could be made without his express consent. It was into this Florentine milieu that the 31-year-old friar Girolamo Savonarola arrived. The convent of San Marco, to which Savonarola had been assigned, 
was originally constructed at some point in the 13th century, but had undergone extensive renovations on behest of Cosimo de' Medici in the final decade of his life. According to contemporary sources, Cosimo, then age 65, was going through somewhat of a midlife crisis. In this era, usury, that is to say the practice of charging interest on money lent so as to enrich the lender, was still considered by the church to be a mortal sin, tantamount in most cases to murder or robbery. Despite claiming to be good Catholics, the bankers of Renaissance Italy engaged in this practice extensively. It was in this way that bankers such as Cosimo were able to amass their fortunes in the first place. While many Christian moneylenders were able to rationalize these actions as not technically falling under the church's definition of usury, this sort of thing tends to weigh heavily on one's conscience. Cosimo, concerned about the state of his mortal soul, asked his friend, Pope Eugenius IV, if there was any way to earn God's forgiveness without having to part with all of his worldly possessions. The Pope told the aging banker that the best course of action would be to donate some 10,000 florins to the convent of San Marco to be spent on renovations to the complex. Cosimo would surely have seen this as a win-win scenario. He was already in the habit of granting his patronage to similar such architectural projects. For instance, he was responsible for the creation of Florence's first public library in the year 1444. In fact, such patronage was a major pillar on which the Medici faction's dominance of the city stood. Therefore, such a project as this would serve to greatly enhance the family's prestige and ensure that the inhabitants of this convent would remain aligned with their interests. As a result of Medici patronage, the convent of San Marco did not resemble the sort of monastic institution to which the ascetically inclined Savonarola had become accustomed. Author Paul Strathern paints a rather vivid image of the convent at this time, quote, The Florentine Dominicans no longer lived in poverty or depended on the charity of their congregation. The cells of the individual monks were for the most part well furnished, and indeed the librarian and the prior lived in some degree of luxury, with meals served privately in their cells, where on occasion they would entertain leading citizens with sumptuous meals served on dishes and plates bearing the Medici crest. All the food for the monastery was supplied by Lorenzo the Magnificent himself, with olives, wine, bread, fish, fruit, oil, and eggs provided in great abundance. By special dispensation from Lorenzo, all such produce for the monastery was imported into the city free of the usual customs charges. Even the monks' robes and silk vestments were specially tailored by Lorenzo's personal haberdashers, the same ones who also ran up the costumes for his carnivals and popular entertainments. End quote. Savonarola did not spend too much time in this environment. Rather, during this time, he took to wandering the streets of the city by himself. He would later insist that it was not the city's many extravagant palazzos and cathedrals that had attracted his attention, but rather the city's numerous slums and back alleys, where he saw in painful clarity the vast and ever-widening chasm between the city's rich and the city's poor. Savonarola despaired at the poverty he witnessed, especially when he compared it to the sumptuous living conditions of San Marco. Savonarola would remain in Florence for five years. During this time, he devoted most of his energies to instructing the novices of the monastery, among whom he had gained a reputation for his remarkable command of scripture, prompting one of his contemporaries to say, quote, His teachings raised men's hearts above all human things. It seemed to us that from the time of the early Christian fathers, no one equaled him in the teaching of the sacred books, end quote. An occasional part of Savonarola's duties was to deliver sermons on special occasions. Mostly, he preached at smaller churches just outside Florence, but in 1484 he was invited to deliver a Lenten sermon in the Basilica of San Lorenzo, 
one of the oldest and most important churches in the entire city, and the ancestral burial place of the Medici family. Apparently, it would seem that the friar did not make that great of an impression upon the congregation. His nerves must have gotten the better of him, and he struggled to be heard in the massive, spacious basilica. When he finally was heard, the audience had a hard time understanding him, given his thick Ferrari's accent. Savonarola later wrote, quote, I had neither the voice nor the strength nor the ability to preach. As a result, everyone was bored when I delivered my sermons. Just a few simple men on one side of the aisle and a few poor women on the other had come to hear me, end quote. Savonarola had been utterly embarrassed by this ordeal. He resolved to never preach again, but his superiors insisted that he give it another try. The following year, he delivered another Lenten sermon, this time at the church in the town of San Gimignano, where there was far less pressure on him to perform well. The words of this sermon have unfortunately not been recorded, but it would seem that his words were much better received. Upon returning to Florence, Savonarola was informed that he had been reassigned once again. He was now to return to San Domenico in Bologna to become the master of studies there. Savonarola's sudden departure from Florence had gone all but unnoticed, but in only five years he would return, and this time he would have the strength and the courage to speak out publicly against the increasingly wretched state of affairs in Renaissance Italy. But you'll have to tune in again in two weeks to hear the next part of this story. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, etc., please feel free to send them my way via my email, historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, it's possible to reach me via Twitter or Facebook, links to both of which can be found in the episode's description. If you like the show and would like to help keep it running, there are a few ways that you can do this. You can leave a review of the show on whichever podcast platform you listen to in order to help the show reach a wider audience. Alternatively, you can also support me financially by purchasing some used books for me on eBay or by becoming a supporter on Patreon. In any event, until two weeks from now, this has been the Historia Dramatica podcast. Thank you very much for listening once again. I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off. <laughs>